Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future, and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. Today, my guests on Work With Purpose are Rob Stefanik, the Secretary of the Department of Parliamentary Services, and his deputy, Kate Saunders. Rob has had a long career in public service and before he was appointed to his current role in December of 2015, he was indeed the head of the New South Wales Parliament. Rob, welcome to Work With Purpose. And Kate has worked successfully for many years across a number of corporate services areas in the Australian public services, including at the AFP, the APVMA and CASA. Kate, welcome to Work With Purpose. Um, listen, before we get into the uh, the conversation about parliamentary services, I'm always intrigued about people's journeys into the, the public service. And, and Rob, if I might start with you, you were the head of uh, the New South Wales Parliament, but it seems that you've spent your career looking after parliaments. Um, pretty much uh, the majority of my career has been uh, within the parliamentary service. I uh, initially, I uh, was one of uh, many graduates that graduated in the recession we had to have in the 90s. Um, I'd originally intended to be a lawyer, um, but uh, that graduate employment that I had had dried up. And so um, I found myself competing through campus interviews and uh, landed uh, in Pricewaterhouse, in the, as it then was, uh, in the corporate tax area. So there was a bit of a diversion there. Um, and after a couple of years there, um, because I had more of an interest in uh, the policy behind the law, um, a role came up in the New South Wales Legislative Council that I found uh, quite attractive. Mm. And it was meant to be just a policy diversion for a couple of years. And uh, 19 years later... <laughs> uh, <laughs> what do you like about it? What do you like about that? Because I imagine it's a very technical job. There's lots of different parts to it. I guess from the from the core parliamentary roles, you've got the procedure and the committees aspects, and, and both have um, a, a feature, I guess, where an understanding of how the mechanics of law uh, operates is is valuable. Mm. Um, so there, there are those elements, and then there's obviously the corporate side, the administrative side, where I eventually did uh, move on as well. So the reason I was in there for that long is because there are so many different aspects to it, I was able to move around and gain a whole uh, bunch of different experiences mm. that um, that interested me for, for that duration. So, um, And as you do, I guess you sort of move up the ranks uh, eventually and uh, when the role with Department of Parliamentary Services came up, uh, there was a CIO role there, uh, moved into there and then uh, into the CEO uh, role after that. So... Um, it's been a serendipitous journey, uh, as much as it is, uh, much as it was a planned one. But um, yeah, sometimes you just can't plan uh, all aspects of, of your career. And Kate, that's often true of many people who work in the public service, isn't it? They get in, they get started, but there are it's infinitely interesting. You know, th- there's a next job, there's another opportunity, uh, and because the work is important, is is that? A similar journey to yours is that you got started and then opportunities just kept finding their way in front of you? Oh, it's funny that you say that because that is 
actually exactly what happened to me. So like Rob, I started my career as a graduate um, accountant with Coopers and Librand. Um, but after a few years, the public service was calling me. That was in Canberra. Um, so it was really a Were natural... Were from Canberra? I was from Canberra, right. yes. Yeah, so born and bred, went to uni here. So it really was a natural progression for me to move into the public service and something that I was really interested in. So I started that um, in the year 2000 when I became the accountant for the High Court of Australia. Um, and from there, I had a number of roles um, the opportunities presented to me at the AFP were phenomenal. It's a very mobile agency. So after about 20 years working in financial roles, I moved into HR, human resources, which was a massive jump for an accountant of 20 years um, and certainly a massive role at the AFP as well. So I managed the branch there. And, and then coup opportunities came my way, including the coup role at DPS, which is where I first began working for Rob. Um, before I won the role as Deputy Secretary. Great. Okay, well, listen, let's get to it because the announcement that really changed Australia back in March when the the Prime Minister stood actually in the courtyard up at Parliament House where he, he gave us all the news that life was about to change. Rob, where were you uh, when that announcement took place and what did you do? As the, as the person who's in charge of the parliament? Um, it, it's an interesting journey, uh, that one, David. We, I guess, when the uh, emergence of the, the pandemic started to get report, reported more widely, uh, we already started talking about it and, you know, the possibilities of it striking Australia and what the implications would be for us. So we'd already uh, started the planning and preparation from some time ago. So as I guess the pandemic spread and it became more obvious that it was going to have an impact, um, we did. Um, we were essentially ready to go by then. So it wasn't it wasn't a surprise, okay. fortunately for, for us, um, because we have, I guess there's various aspects to the work we do. Uh, one of those, I guess, is as custodians of the building uh, itself. Um, but obviously the core purpose is uh, allowing the parliament to function. So uh, we were very much um, thinking about how we'd ensure the parliament could operate hell or high water. Uh, we'd never shut the building. Um, even during the, the peak of the fires, uh, we ran our air conditioning 24-7 so that, um, importantly and symbolically, the building could be seen to be open. So... Um, so a long answer to your to your question is um, uh, we're pretty much uh, in our war room, I guess, uh, getting ready uh, with the various measures that we we're putting on the table uh, that we felt were necessary based on the risks uh, that we had and uh, how we needed to manage them. So, Kate, take us to the war room. Um, what questions are being asked in that war room to ensure that the parliament can continue to operate? What were the, and who were the key players at, at that point? Um, yeah, look, I mean, that's a great question. So when the World Health Organisation did declare COVID-19 as a pandemic, DPS, we needed to en enact our pandemic plan. We had one ready to go, which okay. was fantastic. And as the um, deputy, I needed to establish and then chair our 
Continuity Coordination Group, which continues to meet regularly and is made up of members from across the DPS SES with functional responsibility for responding, as well as observers from the other departments who operate within Parliament House as well, so Department of the Senate, Department of the House of Reps. And as well as that, it was really important that we stayed um, in close communication with the officers of the presiding officers. So their chiefs of staff were also... Um, observers um, for those meetings um, and the questions immediately were how would we respond to the necessity to have our staff working remotely. Um, that was probably one of the key challenges for us because DPS has traditionally um, been a, well it is a very operational agency so traditionally our staff have operated on site so we needed to work very quickly to ensure that we had the ICT capability as well as the work practices for our staff to work effectively from home. And um, we were working um, really closely as well with the coup committee, the whole of government coup committee, um, and that was particularly important to make sure that we stayed tapped into that whole of government response. So then it was it was questions like. Um, uh, I guess reminding um, ourselves or reviewing the critical roles within DPS to ensure the continuity of business, making sure that we were also um, fully across all of the ACT government restrictions as well as the health advice that was coming out from all of the health officials. And um, Parliament House really is like a small city. Mm. It is a microcosm. Mm. We deliver so many services in in addition to obviously housing parliament, the most important function and the support services that go along with that. We welcome members of the public into the building. So there were considerations in relation to that as well as operating things like a gym, many food and beverage outlets, um, a really large scale capital works program. And, and so, you know, the list goes on. So there were there were very, um, a very large number of considerations and questions that were being asked at that time. And Rob, from your point of view, um, how did it feel? You know, was there a, a sense of calm as it was rolling through or was there a, a degree of, you know, perhaps anxiety because of the, these huge numbers of considerations? Because it is really a a city within a building in, in many ways. Yeah. Um, the, the feelings were interesting. I, I guess they're quite broad depending on where people were sitting. Um, I think because the situation was so fluid and we we're adapting so quickly, I don't think there was actually time to process um, any emotion out of it. We just needed to get on with it. Um, but we were mindful, I guess, that uh, of the um, stresses it would cause for staff, the, you know, the anxieties and stresses it would cause for staff Um given there'd be sort of expectations of, you know, am I going to work from home? Do I need to be at work? Uh, do I have health issues? You know, am I a certain age risk group? Um, so we certainly were aware of, of quite a lot of different sort of sentiments around. So, But I think the thing that we we're really careful about is we have repeatedly communicated that all the measures were based around the safety of the people. Um, and that's not only the parliamentarians, because if our staff became ill or affected, uh, the possibility of knocking out the entire operation and therefore the ability of the parliament to function uh, was an issue. So um, we kept reiterating that the measures were, were very much for, for their own safety. Mm. Now, it was 
I think perhaps about a week later on the the 23rd of March, where the the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the President of the Senate announced that each house would meet, and I quote, in a manner and form not currently provided for in the current standing orders. Um, You said that the some of the planning was done, but were people starting to scramble to sort of think, how are we going to stand this up? How are we going to ensure that Parliament stays and, and, and can operate? Hmm. I don't know, Kate, are you, do you want to uh, talk to that one? I guess you were involved a little bit more in the actual yeah. delivery of that. No, yep, certainly. Um, so as Rob said earlier, what was critical in our response was ensuring the continuity of the provision of services while we were managing all the risks. So um, there really were a number of measures that we needed to introduce really quickly and um, mitigation of risks was really at the forefront of our mind, um, ensuring that we were consistent with ACT restrictions and health advice we had to put in place really strict control measures um, from the outset. So um, restrictions around things like our gym, the numbers of people, the times that they could attend, that was really strictly controlled. Um, The controlled arrangements for our cafes and dining rooms, including limiting the seating, um, only having takeaway options, cancelling all of our functions and events which happened throughout Mm. the um, ensuing weeks to um, also strictly controlling the movement of um, people through the building. So we introduced something that was a new term to me called cohorting, which involved um, keeping cohorts of people separate. So in particular, we needed to keep members of the public separate from our parliamentarians so that we didn't have the virus spreading from one group to another. Um, In addition to that, we needed to introduce um, procedures for how the building would respond if there was a positive case of COVID. So thankfully, um, that hasn't happened, but um, ensuring that we would be able to notify everyone within DPS, but the building as a whole. Um, So those control measures all needed to be introduced at the same time. And I guess one of the analogies that I used is it's like organising any really big event. (laughs) There's a whole lot of organising and scrambling, as you put it, that has to be done from the outset. But once you've got those measures in place, then the processes follow from that. But what about in terms of the actual parliament itself sitting, the fact that the the, the members of parliament... um, you know, the senators and, and, and the members were not going to be able to come to the chamber. Did Was there drafting that needed to go on or interpretations of legislation that said, oh, hang on, this is how we might be able to get around it? Yeah. Um, from the outset, there's been a view that the parliament needed to be able to meet. Um, so uh, there, there was a period of time, I guess, between March and um, and August before the, the Houses met. There was a bit of public commentary about the Parliament not fulfilling its purpose if it can't meet. Um, one of the, I guess, two of the important points that need to be made is there's a hell of a lot of committee activity. Uh, committees are an organ of the Parliament. Um, in the period between March and now, there was uh, well over 300 committee hearings and about 130 or so of those were, were done by video conferencing uh, with participants and with parliamentarians. So there was very active um, body of work happening already. But there's also, with particularly with the members of the House, um, there's important constituent work that they do as well. And with COVID, um, there's obviously a lot of people ringing the electorate offices seeking help, you know, people that are in dire straits trying to uh, work through the system. 
So there's a massive load of um, that constituent responsibility that, that's there as well. So it's not there's sometimes a perception that Parliament is all about question time uh, and there's a hell of a lot more work um, that, that goes below the surface. Um, but in terms of their, their sitting itself, um, there's never been a view that Parliament wasn't going to sit physically in some form. Um, there's debate constitutionally about whether it needs to sit physically um, and that's a debate I think that will continue for some time. Obviously when the drafters of the Constitution... Um, <laughs> prepared <laughs> they weren't thinking of COVID or technology uh, at the time so there's there's a lot of interpretation of, of what that means under the constitution but um, the Parliamentary Privileges Act actually allows parliamentarians to participate um, so wherever they participate in the parliamentary process uh, it's covered by parliamentary privilege so that, that by implication means they don't actually physically have to be present and video conferencing has been a feature for about 20 years now um, through committee hearings. So it's not a new concept uh, in parliamentary um, context. OK. Now, we do have uh, questions uh, which are a feature of the um, Work With Purpose podcast that come from IPA Future Leaders. And I do have a question that relates uh, to what we were just discussing, and it's from Amy Burgess from the Attorney General's Department. And she asks, uh, the pandemic represents the first time that parliamentarians have been able to attend virtually rather than purely physically. And with that comes a host of challenges and some limitations. Aside from the technical challenges of facilitating this new way of working, what are some of the flow-on issues, for example, implications for voting, parliamentary privilege, which you've just answered, and, and how were they worked through? Um, yes, so a lot of the political decisions, I guess I'm not privy to. Our, ours is more the, the implementation end. Um, procedurally, as I mentioned, because a lot of that work had already um, um, had already been done in terms of the, the, the pre-planning, um, there was a level of confidence that constitutionally and based on the Privileges Act that those elements were, were pretty much uh, under control. Um, there's the mechanical side of it, I guess, with the technology uh, being used. Um, then there was the issue of getting the parliamentarians that were going to be in Parliament um, sitting there. So um, the, the view was is that needed to be a quorum um, in both houses that was present for the actual debate and for the voting. Uh, one element that was a feature of both houses is those that were participating remotely could not vote. Um, so they could participate in most other respects uh, in terms of debate, um, but that was one feature where, where they couldn't. To you, Kate, in terms of the technology, one of the features of, of Parliament House for, for those of us who have been lucky enough to spend extended periods of time up there is that it is a very well-connected uh, building with a huge amount of capability and there's that huge capability that is sitting in the basement. How, how, has, you, how has it held up under this sort of increased call on its, uh, on its capability to be able to deliver? It's held up remarkably well. Um, the people who work in DPS and throughout Parliament House have been amazing. So in terms of the capability of people, I mean, you're happy if I go there sure, right yeah, now? Yeah. Um, the people are, have been extraordinary. Everyone has really stepped up and been 
um, committed to the response and prepared to work in different ways to how they have before. I mean, some of the things that we've needed to do to ensure that we have the right sort of um, physical distancing throughout the building is to, and the business continuity is to split critical teams. So we've had to split those teams up so that we can ensure that if there is a, a spread of COVID that we've got teams who can still continue to maintain the building. All of those people that you're referring to who work in the basement, for instance, mm. they have to be able to keep things ticking along and, and continuing even if there is an outbreak. So there were lots of measures like that that we needed to put in place from the outside that the technology helped us, um, but but as importantly has been the attitude of the people and their willingness to work differently, to embrace technology and um, I think to trust the leaders of the organisation that we would be keeping them as safe as possible throughout that time. Um, but there have been other measures that we've had in place like um, copious amounts of hand sanitizer that you'll <laughs> see at um, each entrance to the building <laughs> um, and we've had safety marshals at the entrances as well to hand out masks to people and, and provide guidance on how to use them. So um, all of that's been important and, and there have been times where um, our staff, um, particularly those who are required um, mostly when the building is open to the public, who've um, been prepared to step into a completely different and very foreign role um, in order to be able to support the whole of government response. I've got a great example of that if well, you're interested in hearing yeah, about sure. it. Uh, so, um, in order to help Services Australia in their whole of government response and to ensure that JobKeeper um, uh, claims were processed as quickly as possible, there was a call out, which I'm sure you're aware of, across the public service for additional people to step in and help. So, um, we were able to set up a satellite processing centre for Services Australia, which actually operated out of Parliament House. So some of those spaces that um, you're referring to, which weren't required during the pandemic, so some of our function spaces, we actually set up as JobKeeper Claims Processing Hubs within wow. Parliament House. So, wow. And we staffed those with our own staff, so people who'd worked as security officers, um, visitor services officers, so conducting tours, people in our catering and events areas, to name a few they moved across and for the first time ever were processing claims. So they learnt a new skill really quickly. They um, were really happy to be able to help to that um, whole of government response. And one extraordinary story I heard was from one of our um, long-standing security officers who, again, had never worked in this area before, who is a gentleman in his mid-50s um, was learning, was processing claims, was talking to another gentleman who had submitted a claim who was also in his mid-50s who explained that for the first time ever in his entire working life he was needing the support from the government and needed uh, assistance like JobKeeper. And so that really hit home for our security officer who was already committed um, to the cause, very willing to step up yep. and, and, you know, overcome his own nerves at learning something so new. But he felt such a deep emotional connection to the work that he was doing. And that was a resounding story through, um, you know, and from everyone who was working that in that space. And what was great for Rob and I was that we also saw this up until that point untapped 
and underutilised talent and capabilities. So, I mean, that's certainly something that we've taken on board that we will be pursuing more of. So, Rob, how, how will you look at that, that um, capability perhaps, um, an attitude that's been developed amongst the staff? How will you then use that to, to adapt in, mm. into the future? It, it's one of those interesting. Um, uh, I always say when you've got these sort of events, you need to look, keep looking for silver linings, and that was certainly one of them. Where um, it, it's changed our focus a little bit about um, obviously the staff have to be amenable to to, to being engaged in different ways, um, but it was important that it gave them a sense of satisfaction, and and we've certainly got a number of stories where people just um, yeah the ability to contribute and to help people in need. Uh, was was a massive incentive in itself. So um, we um, we've done some um, strategic workforce planning uh, in the past, and we're now relooking at that um, just to examine a little bit more about the talents we've got on board. As Kate mentioned, within our we've got nearly two hundred security staff, and they come from all sorts of walks of life, um, all sorts of histories, uh, being in the military or ex police. Uh, or tradespeople, um, so there's a lot of talent sitting there um, that isn't normally being used. So um, we just need to open ourselves up um, a little bit more. And, um, and given we do provide a very broad range of functions, um, enable a bit of mobility. Um, so uh, they've got something, um, I guess, a little bit more rewarding uh, and a little bit more diversity in the work that they do. How are they? How are they holding up? You know the, the the people, given that it has been such a challenging time. Because yes, COVID, but bushfires here in Canberra. You know, it's been a very challenging time for people. And while that initial surge of enthusiasm is there to help and to contribute and 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 to be able to um, to do something uh, to help people, how are they holding up to today? Are they that they still? pushing forward? Hmm. We've, we've tested along the way with our staff about their, their sense of um, anxieties. Um, we've obviously, like other agencies, have our own uh, employee assistance schemes. Um, there seems to be little utilisation for that, so that was quite surprising for us. We actually expected there would be uh, much higher uh, use of that. So, um, But, I mean, I, I guess we have been careful in terms of how we managed our environment. Um, so I'd like to think that the work that's gone into um, emphasising their safety has, has assisted with that. Uh, we, were, we were certainly all challenged during the homeschooling period, uh, when we, <laughs> uh, myself included, um, when you're not doing any job properly, uh, not, not, not as an employee, not as a, uh, not as a parent and, and, and not as a school teacher. Um, so um, there was certainly a lot of stressors there, but um, you know, security of employment's a big thing uh, in these times. Um, so I, I think that was certainly a feature. And Kate, how long did that call centre operation stay in place for up at Parliament House? I haven't, I haven't heard that story before. It, it was a few months. Okay. Yeah, so they are no longer in need of our services, which everyone's um, a little bit disappointed about <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the staff truly enjoyed it so much. Um, but, you know, obviously it's great that, that that's no longer a requirement. Sure. Now, um, Parliament House, the building, is a, is, is a thriving tourism destination and particularly in the weeks of 
when, when the house when the house and the senate senate sits it is full of people coming and going it's a it's a a vast uh, enterprise um, that is delivering for all sorts of groups and i do have a another question here from a ipa future leader and it's uh, Rebecca Lee McDougall from the Department of Education, Skills and Employment. And she asks, like many people who've grown up in the New South Wales school system, and I don't think it's just the New South Wales school system, my final year of primary school included an excursion to the nation's capital. One of the highlights, for me at least, was visiting Parliament House, where we had our tour and we got to sit in on the House of Representatives. Given the COVID-19 situation and the travel restrictions and other health measures imposed, many schools are unable to do this excursion. How has the DPS engaged with schools during this time, allowing young people to gain a better understanding of the Australian political landscape while not being able to travel to the heartland? And I'll throw that to you, Rob. Yeah, um, it's it's one of the really regrettable um, uh, outcomes, I guess, from from COVID nineteen is, um, I guess, not only our our schools but all the cultural institutions in in Canberra had to um, shut for to the public, and that obviously meant school visits as well. I think what the reflection for us is. Um, that we do need to put more digital content online. Um, we we do have some material there, but it's perhaps not as engaging as it could be for, for that sort of cohort. Um, so it, the reflection for us is we need to do a little bit more work. Um, that, that has other implications as well for um, schools in regional areas that don't have the opportunity to come to Canberra. Uh, it provides them with, with an ability to, to get a civics experience as well. So... Um, it, it is unfortunate. Um, we literally had to pull the shutters down uh, on the school groups. Um, but as soon as we could, uh, once we uh, opened our doors again in July, um, we had school groups uh, lined up. I think the 21st of July, we had Canberra-based uh, groups uh, coming in through the building and um, uh, obviously managed them in a, in a COVID-safe way. But... Um, uh, obviously, we've had to then close the the building again for this parliamentary this two week parliamentary sitting period, and when it's over, we'll be opening it again and opening it to, to schools. Uh, unfortunately, that given we have about 140,000 school kids a year come through Parliament House, there's there, there's many I guess as the school years progress that will just miss out, um, and it is really unfortunate. And I think um, I am fairly heavily involved in the civics education space uh, and I know there's a body of work being done uh, at the moment about how we can continue to facilitate those school groups to Canberra um, and making sure, again, there's COVID safe measures in place um, that operators at all end that bring schools to Canberra um, have a, a coherent series of policies that, that can give schools the confidence that um, their visit to Canberra can be safe. So we're really working towards uh, cranking that up as soon as we can. Um, but I guess obviously with border restrictions being variable across different states, uh, that, that in itself poses some challenges. And Kate, for your team, because it's interesting when, when you, know, um, you reflect on this, because I can remember my trip you know, from, from primary school, way back it was the old Parliament House then, not the, not the new Parliament House, but I can still remember as clearly as, as yesterday. I can tell you exactly where we went. I remember who the member was, uh, Michael McKellar from Moringa. I remember who I, who I sat next to in the chamber. It, it is such a powerful experience to go 
to Parliament House, Kate. So that that must be a, a, a real challenge for for everyone in this in in the in the building because I'm sure it would probably be the favourite part of many people's jobs is to have, have the kids in the place. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been it has been really difficult, I think, for everyone. And, and it's it's particularly stark when you walk through the marble foyer and the, it's empty. <laughs> it feels eerie. It actually has an eerie feeling about it. So, I mean, we are, we are um, focusing more on what we can provide online. That's really important. And um, so that has consumed, you know, quite a bit of time and energy and focus, which is great. No, but it's interesting you say that. It's, it is one of the things uh, also with the closure to the public that um, there's usually this hubbub in the, oh. in the common areas of the building. Yeah. Uh, that are there, and particularly there's, the most school groups come through on sitting days. So you've got the activity in the building, and it swells from you know the resident population is between fifteen hundred and two thousand people. So it swells to anything up to five thousand on on a typical sitting day. Uh, so there's a lot of activity. There's a real life in the building, and you kind of expect when you walk through that marble foyer that you're going to hear the kids, you know. Uh, banter and, um, and, um, and the noise and it's just, yeah, it's not there. But a shameless plug, we have just placed <laughs> our Are you doing something exhibition. like the Rugby League or yeah. something, are you, where you're tuning up the crowd noise <laughs> in the foyer? I really encourage everyone to jump onto the APH website and look out for Voyage of Discovery, so Joseph Banks' Florigium, Florilegium, sorry, and it, it is really good. Okay, and, and that, that's an e- exhibition? It is, yeah. yeah. It's our latest exhibition. So we okay. have, we've produced an online version as well. Mm. Because this is the thing, isn't it? Like the, the diversity of, of what, yes, the parliament's there, but there is so much else that's going on up there. Any given day of the week, really, there's all sorts of things. It's, I love going up there. I lo- absolutely, like most people, I think, who get the opportunity to go there. And I think it's just such a marvellous institution. Um but where to from here? I think that's a that's really interesting. Having had the experience that you've now had, having had the pandemic plans and the response and the staff and the and everything else, and and we've got to where we've got to now. And who knows what's coming into the future with you know uncertain times ahead. Um, where has it taken your you, your thinking, Rob? Where where is where does the future lie? Yeah, that's that's these <laughs> are very good question. I think it's one we're all struggling. Uh, with um, um, I speak to colleagues uh, across the sector um, fairly frequently and um, I, th- I think we were all uh, focused on um, life after COVID. Um, so everyone was looking for that day when, you know, the, the clouds clear and the skies are blue again. Right. Um, but I guess as we've seen with uh, um, the transmission rates in, in different states, our focus has now really got to be on living with COVID. Uh, and making sure we're adaptable, uh, you know, if and when uh, transmission rates in- increase uh, across it. So obviously until a vaccine is found, we're going to need to be highly flexible in, in, in the way we operate. Um, so, and, and, and are those decisions being made sort of modelling on a, a weekly basis, fortnightly basis, looking at things and saying, OK, we'll put this set of um, regulation in place to be able to operate the building. Is it is it that sort of time horizon that you're looking at? Well, I guess um, we've been pretty much uh, early in the process. We've been hooked in with the Commonwealth CMO and the and the ACT government CHO. And we're monitoring, I guess, what the the different stages of their planning are and what the impacts are. 
um, given everything from you know the, the restaurants that we operate to um, uh, the you know the physical distancing required just in the office uh, areas all ha- have implications. So um, monitoring that in advance and making sure that um, we are putting in place you know the, the relevant measures is is one of the ongoing challenges. So I think we just need to be um, agile on our feet and um, rather than get anxious about it, um, still keep looking at the horizon. So I think that that for me is one of the big things we've just got to keep looking in the distance. Um, It's very easy to get drawn into the tactical responses to to COVID um, without thinking about the whole, at a whole of enterprise level, you know, what are the implications for for the, um, for obviously the core business that that we provide and and those decisions are made you know, with the presiding officers and the uh, and the health advice uh, that comes with it. So there's quite a, a large collaborative process involved in coming up with the decisions uh, on how we operate. And Kate, a final question to you, having been through what you've been through, uh, how has it changed you as as a leader and how is that going to change the way that the the parliament operates in into the future in in the key role that you play there as the as the deputy secretary mm, that that is a great question um, so for me the most learning i've had is that realization of what can be achieved the extent of what can be achieved when there is sharing sharing of information sharing of advice um, and sharing of resources across um, agencies but also within agencies and um, and the level of capability that is clear when there's a crisis and when everyone needs to work collegiately and really step up to deliver what's required. So that, that has been um, a great realisation of mine and something that um, we certainly need to continue into the future. Tapping into the whole of government response was phenomenal, but then seeing the talent that our staff have, that was, um, uh, before COVID, it really was untapped and, and certainly not utilised to the extent that it could have been. It's interesting. People can't see this, but your face, when you talk about your staff, you sort of, you light up. There's a real, obviously, a real proud uh, pride. We are so proud. We really are proud of what they've done, um, their contribution to that whole of government response and then also the support um, that they've given to Rob and I and the executive um, parliamentarians. They're proud. They're really, really proud of what they do and what they contribute and how they keep Parliament House going. Um, and we share that pride and also have that pride in them. Well, best of luck uh, for the future. I'm sure a busy time ahead, uh, a challenging time ahead as you continue to deliver the, uh, you know, the critical elements of, of Parliament House all the way from the legislative parts of it through museums and everything else. So, uh, Kate Saunders, thanks to you for your service and Rob Stefanik, thank you for your service. Thank you very much, Dave. Thank you. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network and if you are interested in discussions with experts from all over the world about the latest in government communications and quite seriously, who is not interested in these times of digital transformation about the need to communicate with citizens and stakeholders. Um, There are 230 episodes of the program available and I can tell you that it is an absolute treasure trove of insight. So if you want to discover GovComs, type it into your favourite podcast app and it will come up. 
And also it was previously named In Transition. So you may find some of those episodes coming up as well. Now, in terms of work with purpose and this particular episode, if you do see the social media promotion and the links, please pass it on and a review or a rating would be just fantastic for us. So please pass it along because that helps the program to be found. Thanks again to our good friends at IPA for making this program happen today and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support. This program would not happen without the team here and back at the Content Group office. So a big thanks to them uh, for all the support and to you, the audience. A big thank you to you for keep coming back in such big numbers. But again, thanks to Kate Saunders. Thanks to Rob Stefanik for coming in this week. That's it for now. We'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. 